Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we have one simple goal, and that's simply to find the hidden sources of love, character, and achievement to essentially understand human nature. We've got about 12 minutes, which should give our guests plenty of time to enlighten us, or at least recommend some additional reading to help. Our guest is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times and recent author of the new book, The Social Animal. No stranger to conversations on the radio. Welcome to the EdCast, David Brooks. Good to be with you. David, you are a writer in many ways, an explorer of the human race. So complicated we are. How do you even begin to choose where to explore for a book of this depth? Is it a big, giant whiteboard? Uh, yeah, I, it's driven by sheer desperation. <laughs> you go wherever th- things seem interested. This got this came to me not because I set out to do this world, but I was writing columns about social mobility, and that took me to high school dropout rates. Why do so many people drop out of high school when every incentive tells you don't do that? And that took me very early to the early years, the first three years. It took me to the work of Jim Heckman, the Nobel laureate from the University of Chicago. And once he started, you get into the first three years, you get into brain formation, you get into attachment. And then that took me to the world of brain science. And it was exciting to me because we live in a world where we're very good at talking about numbers and things that can be counted and measured. We're pretty bad at talking about emotions and relationships. And here were people who were not philosophers, not theologians, but scientists. And they were giving us a way to describe uh, relationships and emotions, all the soft and squishy stuff. And so I just found it fascinating that we were learning more about this uh, squishy underside of our, our thinking. I think what's fascinating about how you decide to engage with this topic, uh, y- your model is sort of borrowed from 1760 from Rousseau. Tell us a little bit about Harold and Erica. Yeah, I'm a journalist. I'm not a professor. So I think better when I have examples. And so what I do is I take all the, of, well, a lot of what we know about the unconscious, the research done by scientists, cognitive scientists, neuroscientists, psychologists, and I try to show how it may play out in real life. And I do that by creating two characters who are you know, fictional characters, and I simply use the research to shape their behavior. So when you're talking about attachment theory, how a baby attaches to mom, I actually try to describe that in real life. And so I have a, a chapter set in a high school, and I have my character go from the, the cafeteria, where he's very adept and very smart, to the classroom, where he's not so good. And I try to describe how a br- very brilliant teacher uh, makes him better in the classroom. You mentioned uh, about education right now, high school, and teachers. An uh, example of education comes across a lot through your book. Another very complicated model is education. Are we seeing achievement through education in this book or through all your writings? Yeah, I mean, I, I, there are two sides of education. And the, the part we're good at, and you know, I've covered ed, ed reform since A Nation at Risk. I think it was like 83, 84. And we've spent those many years rearranging the bureaucratic boxes, big schools, small schools, charters, that sort of thing. And yet the elemental fact is the individual relationship between a teacher and a student. Uh, People learn from people they love. Uh, And if you mention the word love at a congressional hearing, they look at you like you're Oprah. They just don't know how to factor that. And so I wanted to describe how that relationship is formed. And then how the teacher uses, we have really two processes going on in our head. The first is the conscious one, the story we tell ourselves, which is logical and linear and rational, and we're aware of it. And the second is unconscious, which is much more important, which is associational, it's emotional, it's pattern recognition, and it's creative. And education, like everything else, involves a dance between those two sides of our brains. And so I want to show a teacher who first makes her students learn the facts, you've got to know the facts, and then reweave the facts by repetition, by different exercises, 
but then frolic with the facts, play with them through exercises, through journal keeping. So unconsciously, the students are beginning to reweave the information, make it their own, and then finally force them to take it to a point uh, by writing papers and things like that. So I want to describe this multiple stage process where the conscious mind and the unconscious mind are interplaying and reacting one off the other. It seems like the unconscious mind within education is rarely ever talked about. Yeah, but it, it, this is one, the, one of the key findings of 30 years of, of scientific research, that the unconscious is just way more important. And so, for example, uh, just some influences of the unconscious mind. Uh, well, I have a zillion, but uh, the, I, I tell the story of Israeli parole boards. Uh, Israeli uh, parole boards give prisoners six minutes to present their case and then decide whether they get parole. And in 35 percent, they give parole in 35 percent of the cases, except in the hour after lunch and breakfast, when it's not 35, it's 65 percent of the cases. Their full stomachs make them more forgiving. And you're not aware of this sort of thing, but that's the sort of thing that, um, uh, that influences how you, uh, how you uh, think. If you apply to Harvard, you want the admissions committee to hear your application on a sunny day rather than a rainy day because admit rates are higher. Uh, and so there are a zillion different processes going on that we're barely aware of, but that's crucial to how we think. A great quote from your book is, the unconscious is impulsive, emotional, sensitive, and unpredictable. It has its shortcomings, it needs supervision, but it can be brilliant. Right, so it's really bad at math. So if you're doing risk assessment, I wouldn't trust it. Uh, getting the data is important, but it's really good at um, picking up emotional perceptions. It's really good at pattern recognition. Uh, and so you've got to understand what it's good at and what it's bad at. Uh, if you're falling in love with somebody, uh, that's an extremely complicated pr process, uh, and uh, you want to rely on your unconscious most of the time for that. Now let's go beyond the books and stick more with the Brooks. Uh, <laughs> personal takeaways from your writing, I mean, your research, the synthesis, it must be an illuminating process of sort of bubbling new wisdom for you as a person. Yeah, well, my day job is writing a newspaper column, so I've got to come up with an idea every three days. I tell college students, imagine having a paper due in, uh, in three days, and then imagine that's the rest of your life. And so that's what I do, so I'm constantly desperate for topics and information that I can bring to readers. So a lot of what I do is I arbitrage stuff that's done here at Harvard or other universities, and I just popularize it for a wider audience. And so uh, I get a lifelong education out of it. Uh, and hopefully readers get to learn about the work that, say, Roland Fryer is doing or Howard Gardner is doing. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I write their ideas down in 800-word form, I simplify, and there's some cost to that. But, uh, you know, it's worthwhile getting it out to a broader audience. What's left to explore, David Brooks? Where's the untouched space that you <laughs> charter to next? <laughs> well, I'm writing a book on the, uh, uh, the, idea, uh, the history of the idea of humility, uh, a, a quality and short supply, maybe even here in Cambridge. Uh, and so I'm, I'm drawing the history of that idea from Moses and Jesus to Augustine on to the current day. Uh, it seems like if Martians came down, and, and please bear with me on this, <laughs> with no knowledge of man, and said, hey, we want to talk to someone who can explain just what you guys are all about. Maybe someone after reading this book would say, hey, uh, go talk to that David Brooks fellow. You're a good person to chat with, especially after reading this book, in a couple of sentences. David Brooks, what would you say to them beyond uh, we're social animals? Well, we are uh, deeply interpenetrated one with another. Uh, we're also strangers to ourselves, to quote a title from a book, that we're playing a game we don't really understand, that there's a river of information that flows through us. Some of it comes from through our genes. Uh, some of it comes through our ancient culture. Some of it comes through history, some through family, th some through schooling. 
and that we swim in this complicated river of information. And basically what we seek uh, out of this is the uh, limerence, what I call in the book limerence, which is losing the sense of self. When self-consciousness fades away and you're just in love with a task or in love with another person or with God or with nature. And so we're, we're trapped in these skulls, but we're constantly trying to transcend them. Uh, but we don't understand what we're doing or our environment very well. We make a lot of stupid mistakes. The book is called The Social Animal. It's available on Amazon and booksellers across the land. Our guest today has been the prolific, and in my opinion, terrific, <laughs> David Brooks. Thanks for appearing on the EdCast. Hey, thank you. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.